This morning, I don't have a specific passage that we're going to be looking at. We're going to go to Genesis as we begin this morning. Sometimes as I study, and we started, I started my week studying in Philippians. I was preparing a message, two messages actually, that were going to be from Philippians, and the Lord redirected my thoughts and my intentions for this Sunday. So I don't have a profound message for you, but I think it's a message of encouragement. It's a message or a similar message that I preached the first Sunday I was here as the pastor, but it's, a t- it's considering the times, I think it's a message that we all need to be reminded of, uh, especially the circumstances that are going on in many of our lives, and it's nothing but God's Word. The message focuses on two small words. And yet, even though the words are very small, when you put them together, it communicates a truth that we all need to keep injected into our thinking process so that it makes a difference, not just in how we think, but in how we live, in how we look at life. Those two words that we'll see over and over in Scripture are these words, but God, but God. They're not very significant if you just write them out on a piece of paper. But the impact that the message of those two words can bring to your life will literally change your life if you understand what power stands behind them. It really gives us the reality of what life should be, but God. Because as we look around at life, things happening around us, our world, our government, the society, you know, education, all of the mess that's happening in our country and in our lives, It's very easy to look at that and go, man, things are out of control. God has lost the reins, and we are headed for catastrophe. Well, yeah, the world is headed for catastrophe. We know that because we've been studying Revelation. Okay, but our lives don't have to be headed for catastrophe. That's the difference. And our lives don't have to be headed for catastrophe because we have these two words, but God. See, that makes all the difference, and no matter what our circumstances that we face, no matter what conditions we're in, no matter what our fears, there's someone that is greater than that. There's someone that is more powerful than anything that we can face. There's someone that has the answers to every problem that we face in our lives, and that is God. And if we say that we trust God then our lives really should be defined by these two words, but God. Now, I want to share with you several instances in Scripture where these two words appear and the difference that they make in the lives of these individuals and see how we can apply them to ourselves. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31, you're probably familiar with at least the people that we're going to be talking about and these specific accounts that the Bible gives us. We're not going to read the entire passage of each of these, but in Genesis chapter 31, we have the story of Jacob. He's the son of Isaac. Remember, Jacob is famous for swindling the birthright from his brother Esau. He tricked his father as his father Isaac was getting ready to give the birthright and the blessing to the oldest son, as the tradition was, Jacob wanted that blessing, and so he tricked his father. Remember, he had previously tricked his brother Esau into giving him that birthright by trading him a pot of soup for it. 
And now he was going to swindle his father into blessing him. Isaac was old at this point. He can't see very well. He knows he's going to die soon. And so he's about to give this birthright to Esau. And as Esau leaves and goes out hunting, Jacob dresses himself with the help of his mother in goat skin to simulate the hairy skin of his brother Esau. He puts on his brother's clothes so he smells like Esau. And then he tricks his father into giving him that blessing. And then when Esau comes back and finds out what Jacob did, Jacob has to run for his life. Jacob runs and goes to his uncle Laban in Midian. And while there, he meets Laban's daughter Rachel and falls in love. And we know how the story goes. Laban agrees to give Rachel his daughter to him as his bride if he will work for him for seven years. And so Jacob commits to working for Laban for seven years. At the end of the seven years, they have the celebration, the marriage is all ready, the ceremony takes place, and when Jacob lifts the veil of his bride, it's not Rachel, it's the older sister, Leah. And Jacob has been tricked, swindled according to his own swindling. And so he agrees with Laban to work another seven years to get the woman he really wants, the one he really loves. And he does. He works for another seven years, and eventually he gets Rachel. So 14 years to get the woman he wants. And as he's getting ready to leave then with his new family, Laban says, well, I'm not going to give you necessarily what you earned. I'm going to give you the weakest of the herd, the weakest of the flock. And if you keep reading in Genesis, it talks about how Jacob laid strips of bark in the watering troughs and all the spotted and speckled and striped cattle that were supposed to be the weakest actually became the strength of the herd, and those were the ones that Jacob was promised. And so God blessed him. But when Laban told him, I'm only going to give you the striped and speckled, those were supposed to be the, the blemished ones, the spotted, the, the weakest ones of the herd. And so Jacob again thought he had been swindled, but through God's power, that was all changed. And as he's speaking to Rachel about this and about the blessing that he gets in the face of treachery, he says this in verse 7. I want you to look at Genesis 31, verse 7. He says, And your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times. And then we see those two words, But God suffered him not to hurt me. So as Jacob started his life kind of in treachery of his own and swindling of his own, and then it was brought back upon him by Laban, and Laban, in a sense, in his position, could have robbed Jacob of everything. He could have gotten 21 free years of labor from Jacob and not have given him anything in return. He had that power within his hand to do that, and yet... This situation included God, as all situations do. And so with those two words, changed the whole outcome. Jacob says, your father tried to swindle me. He changed my wages ten times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. Those two words represent a contrast. See, it's the difference between what really is and what we perceive to be the truth in our lives. God is in control. We have to keep that in mind no matter what things look like in front of us. God is always in control. And so no matter what the outcome might seem to us, 
we have to remember those two words, but God. But God will change it. God can protect us. God can make all things work together for good. And Jacob gives testimony to that here. For those two words for Jacob, it meant a difference between poverty and wealth. It meant a difference between being victimized and being blessed. And Laban wanted to defraud him. That was his whole intent. But God intervened and did not let that happen. And Jacob walked away blessed. So how many times in your life have you faced deception on the part of others? People trying to defraud you or trying to rob you of something. Could be money, could be anything. What circumstances have you faced that were so stacked against you that you thought there was no way you could get a fair shake? But it's in those specific types of circumstances we need to remember these two words that will make all the difference. But God. Are we looking at what God can do or are we looking at what's happening around us? And just like Peter, if we look at what God can do, we'll be lifted up. If we take our eyes off Jesus and God's power, we will sink. But God makes all the difference. He's promised that all things will work together for good to them that love him, to them that are called according to his purpose. Are we going to trust that in how we live? But God. Jump forward to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to jump forward one generation to Jacob's son, Joseph. Genesis chapter 50. Remember, Joseph was not the youngest of Jacob's sons, but it was the one he loved the most. He gave him the multicolored coat as a symbol of that love. His brothers hated him because of it. And his brothers threw him in a pit as he came out to check on him one day. They were going to kill him, but the oldest brother convinced them not to kill him, and so they sold him into slavery to a caravan that was going to Egypt. And Joseph was sold as a slave. He ended up in Potiphar's house in Egypt, a foreign land, a foreign people, and served there as a slave. And if you know the story, you know that Potiphar's wife tried to corner him, tried to coerce him into committing immoral acts with her, and eventually cornered him, and Joseph ran, leaving his coat behind, did nothing wrong. And yet, because of the false accusations, he was put in prison where he was forgotten, seemingly forgotten by God, if you look at the circumstances. Now, Jacob was the son of promise. That's the one that God said he would fulfill the promise of the coming Messiah. He would fulfill the promises given to Abraham through Jacob and through Joseph and through the 12 sons of Jacob. And here now Joseph is stuck in Egypt in jail, seemingly forgotten by God. Until uh, the Pharaoh has a dream. And then the servant of the Pharaoh remembers the dream interpreter that's stuck in jail, that interpreted his dream. And he tells Pharaoh. And God brings Joseph out of prison to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And because he interprets Pharaoh's dream, God, not Pharaoh, but God sets Joseph up as basically number two in the kingdom of of Egypt. And it's Jacob's plan through God's wisdom and through God's help that saves the world from famine, remember? And it's during that famine 
while Joseph is controlling and organizing all of these food-bearing efforts, that his brothers come to get food from him unknowingly. They don't know it's him, and yet they show up in Egypt because that's the only place that there's food. And as his brothers show up, now Joseph is in a position that literally he has power over their very lives. Now, how many of us in that position would take advantage to get revenge? Joseph could have very easily had them killed on the spot and would have been justified in doing so, both because of his position and because of his circumstances based on man's reasoning. But God worked in him, and Joseph showed mercy. He didn't kill his brothers. In fact, he took care of his brothers. He gave them food. He brought the whole family eventually to Egypt so that they could survive. And in Genesis chapter 50, as his brothers stand in front of him, verse 20 Look at verse 19 and 20. Joseph says this, as they finally recognize him and are afraid for their lives, he says, Joseph said unto them, fear not, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, ye thought it evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. His brothers wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to kill him, to just put him out of their lives. But God had a different plan. And all of the things that were evil that were done to Joseph, God worked for good. In fact, God worked for the good of the very people who tried to hurt Joseph. Joseph trusted his life to God's plan. And even in the midst of life-rending circumstances, he continued to trust that God would work all things together for good. And God did. So let me ask you this question. I know we're not in the specific circumstances of Joseph, but is God still in control of your circumstances? Do you believe that? Do you trust that God has planned all of what happens to you to come out for good, for his purpose? But God makes the difference in all of those things. I want to jump forward in Israel's history to another man you might be familiar with in Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15. We read the story of a man named Samson. Samson was one of the judges, but he was a special judge that God had appointed before he was born to be dedicated to him as a Nazarite. One of the conditions was that he not cut his hair. Now, we know that Samson, through God's strength, was the strongest, mightiest man that ever walked the face of the earth. No one has ever compared to him, ever. And we can say, well, the strength was in his hair. It wasn't in his hair. It was in the spirit of God. But his dedication was shown in that he didn't cut his hair based on the Nazarite vow. And as he dedicated himself to God, then God worked through him. But there's a place in Samson's life where he has conquered many men. He has established himself as the mightiest man on earth. And his enemies, the Philistines, hate him because of it. He can't be bound. He can't be captured. He can't be killed, it seems like. But not only does his, do his enemies hate him, but his own kinsmen and his own country hates him. Now, you may not know this part of the story, 
But in Judges chapter 15, what we read there is a story of Samson going up against 1,000 Philistines with nothing but the jawbone of a donkey, and he kills them all. Okay? We know that part of the story. But I want you to get the entire story. Okay? What happened is that Israel was sick of him inviting more hatred from the Philistines upon Israel. And so Israel comes to him in this chapter and says, we're tired of you causing all this trouble with the Philistines, and they're making it harder for us. So we're just going to turn you over to them so that we can have some peace. That's the scenario that happens in Judges chapter 15. And he says, why don't you follow God's plan? Why do you turn against me? Why don't we just get along and let God give us the victory here instead of you conspiring against me? And their answer is in verse 13. If you will look at verse 13, and they spake unto him, saying, No, we will, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hand, but surely we will not kill thee. They expected the Philistines to do that. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. So there's the circumstances of the story. He was actually being turned over to his enemies by his own countrymen in that scenario. And the 1,000 Philistines that came up to take him captive were all killed as Samson broke the bands on his hands and picked up the nearest thing that he could find as a weapon. But I want you to keep reading, because after this battle, look at verse 16, and Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass I have slain a 1,000 men. And it came to pass... When he had made an end to speaking, that he cast the jawbone out of his hands and called that place Ramath Lehi. Okay, so God gives him the power to use a simple object as the most lethal weapon on the battlefield. Now, that in itself should be a, a great lesson for us. God can use small things to accomplish great victories. Okay, and here he gave a great victory to Samson, but I want you to keep reading. Go to verse 18. Here's Samson after the battle now, and he was sore athirst and called on the Lord and said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? And here's God's answer. But God clave and hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout, and when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. This simple jawbone part of a skull of a dead donkey that he used, that God used as the mightiest weapon on the battlefield, now God turns into a source of water for the warrior that just conquered these men. Now, many of us didn't realize that happened. But see, God doesn't care just about the big things. He cares about the little things in your life, too. God didn't care just about the thousand Philistines that wanted to kill Samson. He cared about him having water after the battle. And he used the same simple instrument to provide both. But God made all the difference here. 
that same God cares about the little things in our lives as well as the big things, but he cares about the little things. And sometimes it seems like in our lives God doesn't care about the little stuff. We are needy for the little stuff. When the big things happen, of course, we need to go to God, but do we go to him claiming his promise that God will provide all our needs? See, the Apostle Paul knew these two words, and he wrote a book to the Philippians, and in that book, in chapter 4, verse 19, he wrote a very famous verse, but I want you to see the first three words. But my God, he says. See, but God changes the circumstances again. The Philippians were very poor people. They were a church in Asia Minor that had very little. They were being persecuted extremely. Some of them were homeless. Many of them were on the brink of starvation. They had very, almost nothing, basically. And yet they supported Paul and his ministry. They, they counted it a blessing to sacrifice what little they had to support him in his ministry. And this is Paul's response to that generosity. He says, I don't want you to worry about not having or not needing things. And he says here in Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But God can supply the little things as well as the big things in your life. Now, we may not have everything in front of us that we think we need for today or tomorrow or the next week or the next month. But we prayed this morning, give us this day how much? Our daily bread for today. And God will always provide what we need for today, whether it be bread, whether it be water, whether it need be a victory in a major battle. But God cares about the big and little things, and he makes all the difference in all of them, if we trust in his promise. But God makes all the difference. If God can use the jawbone of a donkey to kill a thousand people and to provide water for a thirsty man, can't he take care of you too? Jump to 1 Samuel, chapter 23. This is a man we all know, King David. In 1 Samuel, chapter 23, this is before he became king, but we know David's story. David was a shepherd boy, the youngest of seven brothers, of Jesse, uh, the sons of Jesse. Samuel comes to anoint the king. He goes through the first six because they're the big, tall, strong, handsome ones. And then he says, is this all of them? This, none of these is what God has picked. And Jesse says, well, you know, there's the runt. He's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him in. And when he sees him, God says, that's the one. And so he anoints King David. So David has been anointed as king of Israel at a very young age, but he doesn't take the throne for many years after that. And in fact, he goes very soon after this, and we know the story of David and Goliath, how he kills Goliath on the battlefield. And then many of us may know that David served in the court of King Saul, playing his harp, trying to ease his spirit. And two times, Saul tries to kill him with a javelin because he knows this is the next king. And so David runs for his life. And Saul, for years, with his armies, chases David through the wilderness, through the mountains. David is on the run for years. In fact, 
many of his psalms that you read where he's in distress and his enemies have camped about him were written during that period of time. When his life literally was hanging in the balance day by day and sometimes moment by moment, trying to run from King Saul who wanted nothing more than to kill this person who was going to replace him on the throne. And even as Saul's army is on his heels, advancing to within steps of his hiding place, David, even though he is afraid, he knows down deep that he has nothing to fear. And he recounts that over and over in the Psalms. Because God is in control. God has anointed him and God will protect him to put him on the throne because that was God's promise to him. So he knows no matter how bad it's going to get, it's not going to get so bad that he misses the promise that God gave. And in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14, there's a strong statement. It says, And David abode in the wilderness and strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. Now, how would you like that to be the story of your life? Running all the time, living in the wilderness, trying to survive on whatever you can find, hiding from an enemy who wants to kill you at first sight. That was the story of David's life. But the end of verse 14 says, And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. See, David didn't have to fear because God was in this circumstance. God was in control of the circumstances. And no matter how strong Saul was, no matter how many soldiers Saul had with him, he was not going to hurt David because God was protecting him. God made all the difference. But even this great man of God, David, when his eyes became focused on the circumstances and the weaknesses of his own flesh, he had problems. He worried. He feared for his life on many occasions. And you can read about that through the the Psalms. And so instead of finding strength in God, he found himself tired and weak and helpless. And it was in those times that he needed to come back to these two words, just like we need to come back to these two words. But God makes the difference. And David understood that he was hopelessly frail and weak, but God was all the strength that he needed to live on. God was in control of his life, and that's all he needed. He didn't need everything to look hunky-dory in front of him. He didn't need right now to know that Saul was going to die and he was going to take the throne. He was going to wait on God for that. In fact, David had an opportunity at one point to take Saul's life, and he said, who am I that I should put my hand on God's anointed? And so he completely trusted God in this situation. God was all the strength he needed. And for David, it was God that made the difference between success and failure, between joy and despair, and between life and death, literally. And that's all we need as well. I mean, we may not be fearing for our life, but our other worries? God's in control of that. And God can make the difference in our life, just like he made a difference in David's life. Now, I've given you several men of the Old Testament where this statement comes up in their story in Scripture, but God made all the difference for them. What about Christ himself? I want you to think about Christ Jesus, his ministry on the earth. He was the most perfect man, the most perfect God who conquered sin. 
he taught all the things that we need to know as far as living for him and finding blessing in our lives. He went to the cross for us, not because of his own sin, but because of ours. And yet, when you think about God coming to earth, we think, man, he shouldn't have had to do that. That shouldn't have been his circumstances. He was unjustly tried through false accusations. He was mocked incessantly by the crowds, especially at his crucifixion. At the end, he was abandoned by the very people that were closest to him. He was beaten until his body was a mass of bloody flesh and bone, unjustly. And then he was murdered, crucified, and put on a cross, again, not for his own wrongdoings, but because of everybody else's sin, including the people that crucified him. Now, if, we, if he was only a man, if we didn't know the story behind it and we look at that, we would say, man, that was the biggest case of injustice that was ever done on the earth. And that's true. It was, from man's perspective, the biggest case of injustice because Jesus was not guilty. In fact, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Okay? But that sacrifice we needed. We needed him to die for us, because that was the only way we would have forgiveness for our sins, is for someone else to die in our place. Otherwise, we would have to die physically and spiritually for our own sins. That's the message of the gospel. And we've been studying in Acts and Bible study. In Acts chapter 13, we just studied this last week, Paul is preaching to Gentiles at Antioch of Pisidia. He's talking to Jews as well. There's many Jews gathered at this place. And he says this in his sermon in Acts chapter 13, verses 28 through 30. Though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Now, if Paul had stopped there, if that was the end of the story, then he, as well as all of us, would be the most miserable people on earth. Jesus was a great man, a great prophet, a great teacher. He was unjustly punished. He was murdered. He was put in a tomb. End of story. And what hope do we have? None. But that's not where the story ends. Because in Acts chapter 13, verse 30, it has those two little words again, but God, and it says, but God raised him from the dead. A dead Jesus would just be a legend, a hero that we read about in history books. He would be a good person to pattern our actions after, yet there's no hope, there's no joy, there's no life that could be found in a dead Jesus. But God raised him from the dead and exalted him to be the Savior of the world. And because God intervened, then Jesus is not just a man. He is our Savior. He is the living Savior that gives us life, even in the face of death. And it's not just physical life that we're concerned about, it's spiritual life. And so those two words changed not only the physical state of Jesus Christ, but it changed our outlook 
because it provided for us a foundation for a complete change in our life as well, both physical and spiritual. It gives us hope. We literally find life in a living Jesus Christ because God raised him from the dead. And so those two words made all the difference for Jesus Christ as well. But God raised him from the dead. And because God raised him from the dead, our lives are different or can be different. So what about us? Where's the promise for life and hope in our case when things look hopeless? I mean, all of us literally are hopeless spiritually, some physically. We have no prospects. And if we believe in an afterlife, then our future is up to the whims of someone's imagination. But that's not the case. The case is the fact that God is in control and our life is in his hands. Now, here's where we really are because Romans 3 tells us who we are and what we are. And it starts off in verse 10 through 12 and it says, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone after the gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. That's us. That's what Romans 3 says. That's us. And so we're hopeless. We God cannot find and will not find anything good in us that he can look at and say, oh, that's a good person. I'm going to let them come to heaven. We are just absolutely depraved sinners. And so it defines us perfectly right there. Read on in Romans 3, you get to verse 23, and it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there we are again. And so what is our outlook if we stop at Romans 3.23 and just read Romans chapter 3? We're hopeless. We're all doomed to hell. We're all doomed to misery on this earth as well. Because if we can't do any good now, then nothing good is going to come in our lives either. But then we get to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. See, and that changes everything. Even though we're verified as condemned sinners, there's two words that begin that verse that change the whole picture for us. And Romans 5, verse 8 says this, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God changes the whole scenario. It changes our whole outlook. God, again, makes all the difference. And it's not just on this earth. It's what's going to happen when we're free from this earth. When our lives here are over, God changes everything because of those two words. And if our faith is placed in him, then God grants us not only forgiveness of sin and redemption from death and hell, but he gives us victory over sin as well. In Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 6, Paul says this, "...wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." Paul says all of us are defined by that. We all live for ourselves. We all sinned against God. We were all children of the devil, literally. And Paul knew those two words because in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he says this, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together 
with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, when we had no hope, when we were condemned, God intervened. And but God makes all the difference. It's not what we deserved. It's not what we earned. In fact, we can't deserve it. We deserve nothing except punishment. It's not what we earn. We can't earn anything because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. In fact, what we deserved is death. We were all dead in our sins. We were doomed to a life of self-destruction as sinners lead their own lives. But God made us alive. Salvation is not something you do of yourself. Salvation is something God does in you. And he makes all the difference in that. And God saved us while we were still dead in our sins. Because God made all the difference. He reached out to our lost condition, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And it says in those verses, by his grace we are saved. Now, we're saved. Thank God. Praise God if we're saved. But what about every day? That doesn't mean sin has already just vanished, right? Every day we face the temptations. We face the struggles. We face the opportunities for self-gratification, self-indulgence, satisfying our own lusts. That's the temptation that Satan throws at us every single day of our lives. Now, we have life in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mean that the temptation has gone away. And if we yield to those temptations, it'll lead us down a road of destruction, and it'll sever our fellowship with God. So how do we avoid that? Because sin breaks that fellowship we have with him. And it's always there, and we're human beings, right? And that's our excuse. Well, I'm just a human. God can't expect me to be perfect. But Jesus Christ was a human being too. And he was a perfect human being. And he had the same spirit in him that we have in us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul understood that. And so he gives us this encouragement. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you're not going to face anything that's harder than anybody else. In fact, you're not going to face anything that's harder than what Jesus went through. Jesus went through probably the greatest struggle with temptation that any man ever endured. And Paul understands that, and he says, there's no temptation that's taken you, but such as is common to man. And then he uses those two words. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above you that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God knows you're going to be tempted every single day. Jesus was. He, goes, he went through it. He knows. And so God has already planned a way for us to avoid temptation, to, to overcome temptation, to be victorious over sin. And it says, but God is faithful. That means for every temptation... God has already planned a way for you to get out of it, to avoid sinning. There's never a reason why we have to sin. We don't ever have to give in to that, to have our fellowship broken with God, because God already made a way for us to escape it. 
but God is faithful. See, there's our confidence in living the right kind of life. It's not, I'm going to try harder. That's not going to help. But God is faithful. That's the difference. That's where we find victory over sin. Because he's already provided the the way of escape. He's provided the strength. He's provided everything that we need in Jesus Christ. We don't need to despair over the power of sin because God is greater than sin. God is greater than Satan. God is greater than those temptations. God is greater than you, thankfully. And God is faithful. And so our victory over sin is found in the faithful deliverance of God from every temptation that Satan can throw at us because God is faithful. It's in his faithfulness. And here, even in the temptation, we find that God makes all the difference. But God changes everything. Those are two little words. And yet the power behind them is greater than anything that a man can create or comprehend of his own devices, of his own strength. And we've seen just a fraction of the times that those two words appear over and over in Scripture. Those two little words are used to provide hope to the hopeless, to provide strength to the weak, to lift up to the discouraged, to overcome death with life, literally. But God. And our lives might seem to be permanently fixed in trouble, in despair, in hopelessness. I hope that's not the case if you're a believer, because we have these two words. You may think that tragedy and heartache is waiting for you every time you turn around, that desperation and despair are right there staring you in the face. But God makes all the difference in those things. No matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the person is, who the person is, God is the answer to every question. God is the solution to every problem. God is the strength for every weakness. God is the substance for every need. The Bible tells us he is able to do exceeding abundantly more than we ask or think. Now think about that. If God cares about you that much, he's provided Everything you need, escape from temptation, he provides your needs, he gives you protection, he guides your way, he's given us his truth, he's given us salvation in Jesus Christ. How much do we really ask him for? When we struggle in our lives, is it because it's just too much for us to handle, even with God's strength, or is it because we just haven't asked him? We're not trusting him. Because it says he's able to do exceeding abundantly more than we ask or think. He is. We have only experienced a minute fraction of what God can do. Probably because we don't ever ask. We don't trust him. But God makes all the difference. And if you want a difference in your life, you have to go back to those two words. But God. Now, God's not going to give you everything you want. God's not going to make your life comfortable and easy. But God is faithful. God is always there. He will always fulfill his promises. The question is, do we trust those two words? 
Do we trust the person that's behind those two words? Do we really see God as the substance of our life, of everything that we need? I want you to think specifically about a situation that you might be dealing with right now that threatens to steal your joy, that gives you agita, heartache, heartburn. The thing that you worry about the most right now. I want you to think about how difficult circumstances have been because of it and the problems that it could create for you even in the future, regardless of what it, problems is brought already. Do you feel helpless in the face of it? The answer is yes, we are helpless in the face of it. By ourselves. I want you to think about how bad it could be. Go ahead and let yourself worry for a moment. Think about this problem. And now in the middle of it, I want you to put these two words. But God. And if you truly believe in the power of those two words, then the problem goes away. It's solved. Not because the circumstances have been all made right, not because the, nothing is going to come out of it, but because God's in control. And he has promised to do all things for our good, if we love him, if we live according to his purpose. See, when you include these two words, nothing else matters anymore. This is the substance of the Christian life boiled down to two words. But God. And once you include these two words, nothing else really matters because all ills are healed, all sins are forgiven, all debts are paid, all temptation is defeated, all weakness is made strong, all wrong is made right. Because of God. And with God, your life can be restored to what God wants it to be if those two words become the center of how we live. If you're not happy with your life, tell God. But you need to be ready for what answer God gives you as far as the solution. And the solution is just to trust and obey. Trust him to figure things out his way because he knows better than we do. Don't let your circumstances control you because God is already in control of them. And you don't have to worry about fear because God is always there. And as the psalmist said, if God is on my side, I will not fear what man can do unto me. We have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, I want you to think of this. With God in control, nothing bad can ever happen to you. Nothing bad can ever happen to you. Because with God, all things will work together for good. According to his purpose. Because God makes all the difference. He's the antithesis to all that is evil. He's the solution to all that is wrong. And in those two little words, we find the hope that will bear us through the worst that life can offer us and the worst that Satan can throw at us, and God will bring us through it to the other side. 
but God makes all the difference. I hope today and pray today that you let those two little words become the foundation of your faith. Not just in here, but how you live your faith. How you face life every single day. What your outlook becomes. Because God is bigger than everything else. Because when we think of those two words, but God, it reminds us that God makes all the difference. And that's what we need. That's all we need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you love us so much, that you take care of us. You promised to give us our needs. You've promised to protect us. You've promised to bring us through this life. And you've promised eternal life to those who believe in your son, Jesus Christ, who accept him as their savior. And Lord, it's not just a trusting for salvation, it's a trusting with everything that we need to learn. So teach us to trust you. Teach us that you are in control of everything in our lives, that we have nothing to fear. That you have an answer for everything that we come against. Because you care about us. And so you make all the difference in our lives. So, Lord, teach us those two little words, but God, and help us to live in them and rejoice in the blessing that you can give through them. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for the encouragement today. And may we find hope in you, as you promised in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 200.